right, while everybody is gathering their stuff together, their seats, uh, just a reminder, July 9th, we have baptismal service. Also, uh, later on in the summer, there's uh, probably going to be a need to pack some boxes for Jim and Phyllis. I don't know how much that's going to entail. It's not like what we used to do, so it's uh, a little less involved. Uh, Camp Arete, as far as I know, still needs a female camp counselor for this year's camp, which is July 16th to 22, and that should be on your prayer list to pray for uh, counselors and their training in preparation uh, for what they're going to be teaching and dealing with the kids and also for the kids and their, uh, that they will be receptive to the the, uh, teaching. Uh, If you, you know, anybody would be interested in taking care of that uh, female camp counselor role, contact Jeff Phipps. Also, Vacation Bible School is going to be July 24th to 26th, and they're doing a lot of work. In fact, you can go down the hall and see some of the uh, different props and things that they're painting and preparing for uh, Vacation Bible School. Also, we a couple of days ago, we got up information on the Washington, D.C. trip, uh, April 25th to 28th. And that is uh, uh, already all set up. There's a hot link on that where you can go and register at the hotel and take care of that. And then the Israel trip next year, uh, July 4th, I mean, June 4th to 15th, some of the, we're going to be eking out details, but a lot of people always ask about the price. When we were thinking about taking a group this last December, the price was going to be approximately um, $4,100 a person. And that's, that's double occupancy and it will probably be about that. I've got about six places we're going to go on this next trip that we've never been to before. I've been to them, but um, we've never taken people to, so that's going to make it a good trip. If those, if people have gone before, uh, this is going to be some uh, a lot of new places to go, new things to learn about, and of course, so many different things change over the years, so that Uh, plan ahead for that and we're already getting a lot of interest on that trip so that's it for announcements the last announcement is to be in prayer for gene brown i think sandy sent out an email earlier today he's got a uh, he had to have surgery this afternoon i just got a text from uh, kathy keith that he's he did well uh he had a lot of stuff uh he had a perforated stomach, and so that generated a certain amount of problems that they had to go and um, take care of, and they did. He also has a C. diff. I don't know what the long term is. It's just usually called a C. diff infection. That makes MRSA look kind. So this is a radically bad uh, infection that takes a lot of super antibiotics to, to, to knock, it, knock it. And I know of several people who have probably, I don't know for sure, nobody knows for sure, but it's, it is a guess that that was the, probably the cause of their, of their death. So a couple of people from this congregation. So uh, we need to be in prayer for Gene and his daughter Giselle, uh, prayer for the doctors and those who are, are taking care of him. So we need to really, he, I was down there last night and... Um, uh, he's lost more weight since I saw him three weeks ago, so that uh, we just need to be in prayer. Okay?
Before we begin, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are spiritually prepared for our time of studying God's Word tonight, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight as we come before your throne of grace, we are reminded of your goodness to us and your provision for us in saving grace and living grace and in dying grace. And Father, we just bring before you our dear friend Gene, and we pray for him and his comfort and his strength and stamina, and for the doctors and wisdom. Father, we pray that um, he would not be in any pain, and we just know that he's uh, in your hands and in your timing. We pray for comfort for his daughter Giselle. And Father, we just know that so many who have gone up to the hospital to see him have been a great testimony to uh, the medical staff and others around. And Father, we're just thankful for that, thankful for the privilege of knowing believers like Gene who are just so focused upon you and serving you and that they might, their lives are a testimony and encouragement to us. Father, we pray for us tonight that we would be encouraged as we study your word and that God the Holy Spirit would use what we study to challenge us, to teach us, and that as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is the result of your word, as our Lord said, we are sanctified by the study of your word. It is truth, and your word is the means by which we grow. And we pray that we might not forget that. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel 27. We've had a couple of weeks, I think, since uh, we were in 1 Samuel. And so I want to do a little review. We're going to cover 1 Samuel 27 tonight. Most of this that we see in the remainder of Samuel is a historical narrative but as we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things are written for us. They are written as an example to us, and they are less lessons for us. When Jesus prayed, as I quoted in my opening prayer, when Jesus was praying to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. When he referred to thy word, he's not talking about the Gospels or the New Testament. That hasn't even been written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. When Paul writes to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, most of the New Testament had not been written at that point, maybe half, but it had not been written. He's talking about the Old Testament. In the previous verse, he said, it was the knowledge of the Scripture that brought Timothy and his family to salvation as Old Testament saints before they heard the gospel that Jesus had come, and then when they believed in Jesus... They became church-age believers, but that was Old Testament. And it's always discouraging to me when I hear about people who don't know the Old Testament. They think, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with the church. Well, that wasn't Paul's view. That wasn't Jesus' view. That wasn't Peter's view. But that, unfortunately, is a misconception that a lot of people have. So it's important to study these passages, and I've spent a lot of time, of course, as you know, going through these uh, these Old Testament books, Judges, Kings, Genesis, um, Psalms, 
Proverbs because they contain much that is important for us that hasn't changed through the uh, through the dispensations. So we're continuing to study David, David's wilderness years, and during David's wilderness years, David is learning a lot of spiritual truth. He's growing. He's learning about trusting God in the midst of his crises, in the midst of the tests that God is taking him through. And he is exhibiting the qualities and the character of a leader, of a godly king. And as in that, in his obedience to God and in his positive characteristics, we all know he was a man, he was a sinner, he had many uh, horrible sins. But as a, a, a believer who was walking with God, he is a foreshadowing in many areas of his life of the Messiah, of the ultimate antitype. We use the term type to refer to the example, and antitype is what it is representing. The antitype is the Lord Jesus Christ as the final king, the eternal king of Israel. And so there are those who were designated as and seen as types or foreshadowings or examples of Jesus. And, and David is demonstrating this, and there's a definite... Uh, intention on the part of the of the writer of Samuel to contrast um, make a contrast between Saul as a failure who all almost becomes a type of Satan in his hostility to God and his uh, because as as uh, Samuel uh, uh, rebuked him and said uh, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and it's idolatry and that is following in the thinking of satan even though i believe saul was a believer as we'll see when we get into into uh, chapter 28 so david is going to be demonstrating his role as messiah by extending the conquest uh, that was the responsibility of the leader of israel they had not completed the conquest of all the land that god had designated uh, as part of the Abrahamic covenant, they had stopped because of compromise, and so they and they lost ground during the time of the judges. And the last judge is Samuel, who's the uh, he's not the first prophet, but he's the first uh, uh, national prophet that it has a a national significance. And he's still not up to the same level as Moses was at the beginning. So Moses is is a prophet. He's uh, has various, and he's the leader of the people. He's not in the same quite category as Samuel. Samuel's a judge as well as as a a priest and a prophet. So Samuel is has has died at this point, and the people are left without that voice, without that leader. In this next slide, which somehow I slid, let me um, let me get out of this a minute and go to this slide. I moved the slide so that it doesn't fit within the circles. Here we go. Okay. There's a certain amount of geography we have to be aware of in this, in this chapter. Now, this slide is really focusing on, on sort of south-central Israel. Up here, at, uh, here we have Jerusalem. Uh, Galilee would be to the north. So here, off the map, so here's Jerusalem, 
Here's Bethlehem. Here's uh, Gibeah of Saul here, which is where Saul's headquarters was. We see in the purple line tracing uh, David's flight from Saul during this period. And then he uh, comes back. He goes to En Gedi, where he's hiding in a cave when Saul comes in uh, to relieve himself. And then again, there's another confrontation uh, where he gets a, uh, goes out in chapter 26. Uh, Saul has been chasing him with 3,000 men again. And so David goes out and uh, takes his spear and his helmet and then goes on a ridge line and calls back, and there's that opportunity he had to kill Saul. That is at the end of the previous lesson that we studied. And Saul, at the end of that, seems to repent, but we know it's simply remorse. He makes this recognition statement again, that uh, David, recognizing that David will be the next, the next king. Now, the action in chapter 27 and then in 29 is going to take place in this location on the left side of the map, Ziklag and uh, Gath. Those are the two areas. Gath is a city of the Philistines, Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, and Ziklag is down here. Now, I'm going to show you some other maps so we can orient to that, but this is where most of this action is going to be centered. So we come to verse 1. David said in his heart, this is just an idiom for David talking to himself. He's thinking through something. Heart stands for the mind, represents the internal core part of a person, and we all do this. We're thinking through a decision, and that's what David's doing. He's I uh, had this these confrontations with Saul where Saul has tried to kill him 16 times. And David is now thinking, what will I do? He's got over a 1,000 people he's responsible for, and he has a tough decision to make. Now, we've studied divine guidance, and we've seen that God directs us, uh, and we make decisions on three different bases as we go through the Scripture. First of all, there's d- divine guidance from direct revelation. This is when there's a theophany. God appears and gives direction as he does to Moses at the burning bush. Or you have a situation where God uh, speaks or communicates in a dream or a vision. But God is saying this is what you should do. God appears to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees and said, I want you to leave your home and your family, and I'm going to take you where you're going to go. It is direct revelation. It's not scripture. It's direct revelation, God appearing in some form, uh, either dreams and visions or some other theophany where he speaks to the individual. That's divine divine guidance from direct revelation. That doesn't happen anymore. And it only happened with a handful of people in the Scripture. It wasn't normative. The other way that God gives direction is through Scripture. There are prohibitions. And there are positive commands. For example, the Mosaic Law has 613 commandments. Some of those are positive, some of those are negative. Ten of them are what we refer to as the Ten Commandments, the Thou Shalts and the Thou Shalt Nots. That's all divine guidance through the Scripture. How do you know what God wants you to do? He tells you, don't do this, do this. Okay? That's divine guidance through the Scripture. The third way is divine guidance from wisdom. 
what, and, and we study that in Proverbs and other places, the Hebrew word is chokmah, which has to do with more with application. The word is translated skill in some places, and it has to do with taking the direction from Scripture, and you're going beyond what the, what the Scripture literally says, because it doesn't address every area, every detail of life. And so based on that as your foundation, as your presupposition, you are creating the, your application in new areas, and, it, and wisdom is, is, has kind of a scale to it. You can make some decisions that are very wise and some that may not be so wise. But it's, if it's not quite so wise, it's not necessarily a sin. It just might not have been the best decision. Now, how do you know? Well, sometimes you can tell by the consequences, but a lot of times you can't. I mean, I have made, and you have too, we have done, we have investigated all the data. We have done a thorough job of evaluating a decision in life. And we have decided there's not really any other option. God seems to have shut down every other opportunity. And this is the only way really that's left open to me. And it seems to be a good decision based on a thorough evaluation. And then you make that decision six months, a year, two years later, it's not working out very well. Well, sometimes that's not a, doesn't mean it was a bad decision. Paul made a decision that he was going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and that he was going to follow Jesus Christ. He was going to obey the Lord when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he was going to follow him fully and thoroughly. And he was shipwrecked, and he was beaten a number of times. He was whipped um, by the Jews on three occasions. He's stoned. He's left for dead. He's thrown in jail. He's thrown in prison. He is eventually taken to Rome where he is a prisoner. He could look back and say, maybe this wasn't the best decision based on the negative things that happened. So negative things that happen as a result of a decision you make doesn't mean it was a foolish decision or a wrong decision. Sometimes when we do exactly what God wants us to, he's going to take us through through the fire. Daniel didn't have a whole lot of choice about going to Babylon. He was taken there as a prisoner. And when he was there, he had to deal with a lot of difficult circumstances as a Jew trying to follow Torah and living in the midst of a pagan idolatrous culture. And so often today we think, I just want to get away from it. Well, I think that Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all wanted to really get away from it at times, but they had no option. So they had to trust God in the midst of that situation and figure out a way to obey God without putting themselves in a position of, of hostility where they became an enemy of the Babylonian Empire. That takes wisdom. And that's what we see in Daniel. That's why I believe that Daniel isn't, when the Jews organize the, the books of the, the Old Testament, you have the first five books of the Torah, and then the second division is called the Nevi'im or the, or the prophets. And you had the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, 
uh, Samuel and Kings, and you have the later prophets, which are the ones we usually think of as prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but not Daniel. And then you have the 12. Daniel was in the third division, which was called the writings. The writings were wisdom literature, teaching you how to live wisely in difficult circumstances. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Daniel, uh, Ruth. These were part of the wisdom, the wisdom literature. And the reason I'm going over that is because there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of discussion about Daniel's choice to go to Gath at this point. And some commentaries think he's disobedient to God. He's not trusting God. He's not, he doesn't stop and consult God. But others recognize, and I think they're right, that there's no, there's no prohibition. There's no direct revelation that, that David violates by going to Gath. There's nothing that he's doing that's, that's, that's wrong, obviously wrong. The text doesn't ever indicate anything negative about this decision, but it does have a difficult consequence, as we'll see, because he gets put in a position where Achish wants him to swear fealty to him. He's going to swear an oath to be completely loyal to him and go into battle against Israel. And he knows he can't do that. So how, you know, that that is the result a year and four months later of this initial decision that he made. And the issue at that point is the same kind of situation Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in is how are we, how is he going to thread the needle between being uh, disobedient to God and becoming an enemy of the man who's protecting him from Saul. And that's what where you need to have that wisdom. So we saw that exhibited in Daniel. We see it exhibited here. So David is thinking this through. It's a, de- a decision-making process. And he says, I'm going to perish someday by the hand of Saul. Now that indicates that, that he's perhaps forgotten at this point that God's going to protect him because God's promised he's going to be king, become the king of Israel and he's not, going to be, uh, he's not going to be killed by Saul. That's the only area of weakness you can spot in what's going on here. He says, there's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And he's not just thinking of himself. He's thinking of the fact that he has 600 men with him and their wives and their children, and he's responsible for their protection and providing for them all the logistical needs, and it's becoming more and more difficult to do that in uh, in Israel because of Saul's complete uh, control. So David has to make this this decision. Now, one of the commentaries I, I started reading on this, which I, from what I read today, I thought was pretty good, but I haven't read it thoroughly. There's a new series out that came out. It's just uh, it's just electronic, I believe. That's in Lagos, and it's called the Evangelical Exegetical Commentary. And Wayne House is one of the editors, and I didn't recognize the name of the other guy. But the, and I don't recognize the name of the uh, scholar who wrote the commentary on 1 Samuel, but he makes this statement. He says, the lack of any mention of him, that is David, inquiring of God here, is not evidence that his decisions are wrong. 
But see, a lot of people say, well, you know, three or four chapters back, David is inquiring of the Lord. He's going to the priest. He's seeking the ephod. He doesn't do that here. So David is wrong. He's not trusting God. But that, as as Hoffner points out, that that doesn't follow. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It's not the absence of evidence that he's uh, trusting, uh, doesn't pray to God or doesn't seek God, is not evidence that he didn't. So that's what's going on here. Uh, One argument that is presented is that, that because he doesn't go to God, he's not trusting God, just like, and they go to Abraham. Remember, Abraham is called by God to leave, or the Chaldees, to go to the land that God's going to show him. He leaves, he goes to Haran. He didn't totally obey God. He took his father with him, and he took his nephew with him. When it, and he stops at Haran in northern Syria, and he stays there for about 10 or 15 years before his father dies, and then he goes on and finally gets to the land. He's still got Lot hanging on with him. He hasn't fully obeyed God. But when he gets there, God shows him and says, this is the land I'm going to give to you. And all through this, it, God is directing his geographical movements. And then the first test that comes to Abraham is really a test as to whether he's going to believe the promise of God with reference to the land, and it's a test of the the famine that comes, the drought that comes, and he goes to to Egypt. But that's in violation of this direction that God's been given. We don't have anything like that with David. Secondly, when he when Abraham does that, he picks up a slave girl named Hagar for his for his wife Sarah. And that eventually leads to a very difficult situation that we still have with us in the uh, hostility between uh, Jews, Jews and Arabs. So that was clearly uh, a problem. But it's, I think it's clearly, much more clear than this, a violation of God's direction for Abraham. I don't think the two are, are similar at all. Uh, even though there are some negative consequences here, they're never negative. Con- they weren't foreseeable, and there are a lot of negative consequences that we have from obeying the Lord. I think ultimately what we see here is a picture of the wisdom of the promise in Proverbs three, five, and six: Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Remember, through this whole time period, David has written eight or nine psalms in this wilderness period that we have studied. And throughout that, from the very beginning, the first time he goes to Gath, Gath, and some of the commentaries and the writers talk about David is just as out of fellowship and disobedient here as he was when he went to Gath the first time. Well, who says he was out of fellowship then? Read what he says in Psalm 56. What he said in Psalm 34, he's trusting God in the midst of that. It is as he is thinking through his situation in light of the doctrine in his soul that he gets the idea, God puts on his heart the idea that he should act like an insane person. So God is giving him guidance even in that situation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and what? He will direct your paths. And so when David makes this decision to go to Gath, it's different in some ways from the first one in in more positive ways. When he goes there, after a year and four months, 
it's going to go sideways. But guess what? If you're trusting God, when it goes sideways, God's still going to direct your paths, and God got him out of the bind so that he didn't get forced to go into battle against Israel. So with that, we a couple of other things I want to, want to point out in terms of this debate that goes on on uh, one side. Uh, Tom Constable, who was a uh, professor at Dallas for many years, he may still be an adjunct professor in the Bible department, points out what I said earlier that David had come to believe that if he stayed in Israel that he would die. And that was a lack of faith in God's promise related to him becoming, becoming king. In contrast, you have Gene Merrill, who for, I would say, for several decades was the only solid biblicist in the Old Testament department at Dallas, uh, writes in his commentary in the Bible Knowledge Commentary that this move of David's to Achish accomplished two important objectives. See, he's speaking of this very positively. This was a good decision. It, first of all, it delivered him from any possible danger from Saul. Saul wasn't going to go outside the land. He had no interest in expanding the borders. He only wanted to control everything that was in, within Israel's uh, uh, borders and control at that time. He had no interest in going beyond it. So he says, first of all, it delivered him from any possible danger from Saul. So he's protecting his people. And secondly, it ingratiated him with the Philistines, so he had no further need to fear them. In other words, he points out that in his wisdom, David is not only getting away from the threat of Saul, but he's also ingratiating himself to Achish, so he is neutralizing the threat from the Philistines. So he neutralizes the threat from both Saul and the Philistines by making this particular move. Now, I think that David is applying Scripture. It's not a sinful decision. It might not have been the best decision, but he's not making any, uh, he's not violating any directive from the Lord at all. And what he does accomplish while he is in Ziklag is to expand the borders, which is what the king is supposed to be doing. He is continuing to expand the borders towards the the ultimate uh, borders that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I think that in light of what uh, Hoffner says when he says that um, the Samuel narratives are more subtle than that, is that much of Scripture is, and people have a tendency to force things into certain preconceived boxes, and it either fits this or it fits that, and it's probably neither. So we have to be careful not to be too superficial in how we understand this particular uh, particular passage. Like all of us, David moves from trusting God fully to not so much, and then back again. And as he goes through this, he does fulfill his responsibilities. Everything that is indicated about him in chapters 27, this section goes from 27.1 down actually to 28.2, uh, 28.3 is where they should have put the chapter division when uh, it talks, starts the narrative about the, the uh, uh, necromancer of, of uh, Endor. 
And then this narrative picks up again in 29.1, so we'll, we'll, we'll shift to that. So all of that is sort of background. We understand this political tension that is occurring between Saul and Saul's kingdom and what he's doing within the kingdom and, and the Philistines as, as enemies. I ran across this statement by Yohanan um, Aharoni, who was a Jewish scholar, wrote a book on the geography of the land of Israel, where he says that Saul exercised complete authority over all areas of the Israelite occupation. But he does, he, what he goes on to say is he doesn't expand it. He just wants to exercise his tyrannical control over, over the land that he had when he began. He goes on to say, he, yet he evidently did not try to expand his rule to take in the foreign population, either in Transjordan or among the Canaanites and the Philistines. When David escaped to Gath, Saul did not try to pursue him further. Although Saul's capital was at Gibeah of Benjamin, there's no intimation that Jebusite Jerusalem caused him any trouble, and the presence of that enclave didn't prevent his complete control over Judah. Remember, Jerusalem has, isn't captured until later by, by David. It's still the, under the Jebusites. That was a Canaanite clan, and they still uh, controlled Jerusalem. Saul doesn't try to do anything about it. He's not interested in carrying on uh, the war to conquer uh, Israel. Aharoni goes on to say, as a rule, it appears that Saul maintained normal relationships, relations with the neighboring foreign population as long as they didn't bother the Israelites. The land of Israel in Saul's day was still confined to the precincts of the Israelite settlements, i.e. it was still a limited term. It wasn't, well, and they were still under the dominion of the uh, Philistines, 1 Samuel thirteen nineteen is a verse that says that the Philistines wouldn't let him have any blacksmiths in the land. They wouldn't let him have iron. So, and then in the last part, and remember this when we get into the last part of Samuel, that when Saul gained control over the Jezreel Valley, that's right on the edge of the Jezreel Valley is where Mount Gilboa is located. Saul gained control of that, and the major trade route goes up the coast, and then it cuts inland and crosses the Jezreel Valley. That is going to, by, by Saul taking control, that is cutting into the Philistines' ability to trade and to make money. It's, it's cutting off some of their markets. And so it's got an economic d- dimension. This is why the Philistines are getting ready to move against Saul in chapter 29 and why they have this battle deep in Israelite territory at Mount Gilboa, which is where Saul uh, is going to be killed. So as we go on in the story, David thinks about it, makes a decision. He's going to go to Gath, take his people with him. Verse 2, David arose, went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath. He and his men, each with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. So what we see here is 
uh, just an emphasis on how many people are with David. He's with his 600 men plus their households, their wives, their children. He's got a large group of people that he is responsible for and that he needs to take care of. But he can't stay in, um, in Gath because eventually there's going to be an early form of the Arab-Israeli war. They're not going to get along. They're going to fall out with each other. So he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be watched by Achish. He doesn't want to be under Achish's control. He wants freedom of action. So he again exercises a wisdom, and he says to Achish in verse 5, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Now, some people made an issue out of he calls himself a servant of Achish. In some sense, he is, but he's not saying I've switched loyalties and I'm loyal to you and not to God. He's not going that far. This is this is a polite way of, of talking. If you ever read letters written by our founding fathers and in the early 19th century, they would often close, we'll say sincerely or yours truly. Uh, they would say your obedient servant. It's a more of a polite formality in the way they would uh, recognize that they were uh, under the authority temporarily or permanently of someone that they were dressing. It's just like saying, saying sir or ma'am or please. It's just good manners. So the result of this request is that uh, Achish gives him Ziklag, and so Ziklag, we're told, belongs to the kings to that day. Now I've got to fix this next. I don't know why these maps got moved, but I'm going to switch that back, and then we'll get that fixed. Okay. All right. So he's going to be given Ziklag. Now, I want to orient you as to where this is on the map. We've got two or three maps, and I want to try to point out a couple of things, so just try to, try to pay attention. Here's the Dead Sea. Here's the Jordan River coming down from the north. Whenever you look at a map of Israel, go to the northern tip of the Dead Sea and then go west about 40 miles, and there's Jerusalem. So here's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be in the northern border of Judah. In fact, most of this territory here that we see is all part of Judah down to the Negev. All of this is part of the territory of Judah. Benjamin is just north. In fact, Jerusalem's right on the border, the southern border of Benjamin, which is the northern border of Judah. So what I want you to pay attention to on this map is the location of Gath, which is where he is with Achish, and then the city that uh, he's going to be given is Ziklag down here to the south. This is down in what today would be the Gaza Strip, just about on the corner. Some of you who were in Israel the last time, and we went to a couple of places right there, went past that corner. That's about the area where they think Ziklag is, one of the options. Then down here we have Beersheba, and over here Arad. Keep that in your mind. Just Just kind of picture the relationship here, Ziklag being... Uh, northwest of Beersheba. Now I'll go to the next map. These are the locations of three different tells. A tell is a hill, 
And as there were different layers of occupation, people would go someplace, they'd build a town, and then something would happen. Uh, it would be destroyed by fire or flood, or it would be abandoned for a while, then they would come back and rebuild on that site. And so it would build up like a hill. And you see these in Israel. I'll show you a picture in just a minute. You you build up this 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 hill, and that's called a tell. And then when you cut into it, think of it as like a 12-layer chocolate cake, okay? And when you take a quarter out of that cake, what do you see? You see all the different layers. Well, those are the different layers that of civilization that you see at a tell. So if you look at... Uh, um, one of these tells and you cut into it like you did like they did at, at Jericho you can see the stratification of these these layers so that's what a tell is and you have three sites tell Sarah see how that is due northwest perfectly northwest of Beersheba uh, we went there on the last Israel trip in 2014 tell Sarah here is the most likely site uh, for Ziklag then there's Tel Halif over here, and some think possibly it was Tel Beersheba, but I, that's less than likely because that Beersheba was a site for the patriarchs, and it was well-known, that kind of a thing. So it's probably up here. Now, the other thing about this map that I wanted to point out is geographically you have the coastal plain here. That's the Shephelah, or Shephela, and Gath is up here. So this is in the coastal plain. Uh, here's Gaza. This area here that we're talking about is all part of what we refer to today as the Gaza Strip. So down south you have the Geshurites. They're mentioned here as the enemy that David is taking out. You also have the Amalekites over here to the southwest. And all of this is part of the Negev. Negev is the Hebrew word for south. So when you read the word Negev, it just means the south, down in the south. And since uh, the south was all desert, it also became something of a synonym uh, for the desert. Now here's one other map to orient you. Here's the Negev up here to the upper right. Here's Gaza over here and uh, Ashkelon. So this is the Gaza Strip here. And this is the area where... Um, uh, Ziklag would be located. Okay, so further south, this is the area where David is going to be going on these military incursions because this area to the south was part of the land that God had promised him, all the way down here to Kadesh Barnea. Okay, so that's all of this area uh, would be part of the promised land, but it hasn't been taken in conquest by Israel yet. And so here's the last picture. This is Tel Sarah. You see the mound I was talking about. And as you, the archaeologists just excavate, they just cut into the side. Looks like they've done some of that down here. You can see this opening. And that's where they look for uh, the different layers of, of civil, civilization. Now, Ziklag was... A rural town, it's just a small village. It's not going to be very large, uh, probably not more than 50 or 100 people. So it's a perfect spot for David to go. He's not going to upset a local population, and it's going to provide a 
a good base for him to carry out his his raids without being under the eyes of uh, Achish. So in verse 8, we're told David and his men went up and raided the Gishurites. Saw the map there, there further to the southeast, uh, excuse me, southwest. I think I referred to something as a southwest a minute ago, and it was southeast. Uh, Geshurites, the Gerzites, we don't know who they are. That's the only reference to them, and there's debate over their identification, but they would be down in that site. And the Amalekites, now these are all part of the uh, group that we refer to as the Canaanites. These were all the designated enemies of Israel. And it was still God's will for Israel to defeat these enemies and to expand their territory to extend to the full uh, size of the land that God had, had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when David goes down there, we're told in verse 9, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. So he plunders these people, but he doesn't leave anyone alive. It says he didn't leave any man or woman alive. Some people try to say, well, when in the command to, uh, to Saul uh, to destroy the Amalekites, he was to kill every man, woman, and child, and infant, and that's not mentioned. But I think is a real possibility here that he's not dealing with, we're not dealing with the specifics of a command anywhere. It fits within the general framework of the ban or what we studied this before. I want to review it real quickly. And that is what is wrongly identified as, as holy war. The command to, or the reference here to the Amalekites takes us back as an intentional contrast with Saul's failure back in 1 Samuel 15.3, where God told Saul, go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Now, one of the reasons they were to completely destroy everything that the Amalekites had was because they were this long-term enemy of Israel from the time they came out of the Exodus. They were the first enemy they faced, and the Amalekites sought to wipe them out uh, in the Sinai. So Saul's instructions were to kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now the word here for utterly destroy is this word I have on the screen, harem. It comes from the same root of the Arabic word for a harem where they're isolating their wives. So this has to do with isolating as a core idea, but it means to devote and, in some senses, to destroy. Now, the Israel, it, here's Israel. The green area is the territory, basically, that Saul controlled. Notice it ends before you get over to Gath and Ziklag down here. So Saul does not have control of that territory, and you have Philistia, uh, Aram to the north, Ammon, Moab, and Edom to the east. And down to the south, you have Amalek. That's where David's going to be attacking, is down to this area where there's not much. It's just desert, but it's part of the land that God had promised them. The problem with Amalek goes back to Exodus chapter 17, 
where we'll just look at the last verse, Exodus seventeen sixteen. Said because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, and so that Amalek is the historic enemy of Israel. Now, this plays out in in the in the book of Esther, where even though Saul didn't kill all of the uh, Amalekites, uh, he doesn't kill the king of the Amalekites, and. Uh, it is said that Haman, who lives at the time of Esther, tries to kill all the Jews at that time, is a descendant of the Amalekites. So in, in Jewish idiom, Amalek stands for all the enemies of Israel. They refer to the Nazis as Amalekites. They don't mean that they're literally Amalekites, but they represent this historic anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic uh, enemy. Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way you were coming out of Egypt? How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget totally wipe him out. That command still stands. So David is fulfilling these commands that God has set up. So just to remind you, I want to run through this. I, I left out some of the points I covered before, but I want to remind you that the term holy war is not used in the Bible. It's never referred to as uh, by the adjective kadosh. The term that is used in the second point is this term I mentioned a minute ago, haram, which means to ban something. Now, one thing I liked about this new commentary I was reading today is that he only refers to this war as either Yahweh's war or the ban. He never uses the term holy war. One of the few times I've read commentaries where they don't use that term. And I think that today in light of uh, the jihad of, of uh, Islam that that people say, well, they had their holy war. Well, you Christians and Jews had your holy war. No, we did not. Go read the Bible. It doesn't use the term holy war. It uses the term ban. They were devoted to God for punishment. God gave 400 years of grace uh, before he uh, fulfilled his promise to wipe out the Canaanites. 400 years ago, was how long? That was in the early 1600s. That was the time that the uh, they were settling Jamestown. The theological word book of the Old Testament says the basic meaning of haram, of haram is the exclusion of an object from the use or abuse of man. Okay, so he's going to destroy these cultures because of their uh, rebellion against him. A third point, in the Bible, there's a period of intense warfare between Israel and her neighbors and those who are occupying the land where God authorizes Israel to destroy specific peoples because of their horrible sins. Child, living child sacrifice, burning your baby alive in the arms of Moloch. This is how horrible it was. We cannot fathom the horrors 
in these pagan cultures in the Old Testament that surrounded Israel. We haven't seen, ever seen anything like that in our world today. In fact, when you go to India and places like that that had similar horrible practices uh, back before the British came and Christianity came in the late 18th century and 19th century, those same kinds of things were practiced. But with the introduction of Christianity, they stopped. That's the influence that the Bible has had. Fifth point, or fourth point, I was renumbering these. I guess I skipped one. This should have been the fourth point. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 foreshadowed this, that God would, after giving them four generations, about 400 years, that he would uh, destroy those cultures. In verse 16, in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's got to give them enough rope to hang themselves. And then from a spiritual standpoint, we saw that this is a type of the spiritual warfare we have that takes place in our soul. Just as they were to annihilate the enemies of God in the land, we're to annihilate the enemies of God in our minds. We are in a search and destroy mission with the Word of God to take out human viewpoint thinking and sinful thinking. So in verse 8, David goes after the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites for this same reason. And this is why he is carrying this out to expand the land down into the, into the south, as I've shown in those maps. So in verse 10, then Achish would say, after David had been on these uh, military uh, expeditions, Achish would say, well, where have you been today? Where, what are you raiding? Achish is under the idea that David is raiding into Israel. David is allowing him to think that. And people would say, well, isn't David being deceptive here? Well, this is something that's really important to think through is the use of deception in Scripture. So I want to look at a couple of passages before we get any further. I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Now in Exodus chapter 1, the Israelites are facing an enemy that wants to destroy them, and that is this new Pharaoh that has come on the scene. And this new Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph and isn't familiar with the uh, Jews, wants to annihilate them. He thinks there's too many of them, that their population is out of control. And so in verse 15, we're told the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it's a son, kill the son. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So he's exercising, it's, it's a form of genocide. If you kill all the male babies, eventually you won't have men in order to have children. So he's trying to destroy them. But the midwives feared God, did not do, do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So in verse 18, the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? Why aren't you carrying out my command to kill the male children? And their answer, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively 
and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives. Now what's going on here? They are obeying God not to commit murder, not to take the life of those male infants. They're obeying God rather than man. Okay, that, and so then they're covering it up. So there's legitimate deception going on here. This is hard for a lot of Christians to deal with. Now I want you to turn over to Joshua. We're going to go to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. I've talked about these things before. And and in warfare and in law enforcement, there is a legitimate role for deception, for lying, for going undercover, for for spies, all of this. Very little is written about this, but it has to be grounded in what's going on in these particular texts. In Joshua chapter 2, we all know the story that... Uh, uh, Joshua sent uh, two spies into Jericho in order to do a reconnaissance. They go undercover, and they go to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodge there. And so the king of Jericho is told about these two men, and they know where they, they're from, that they're Hebrews. And so he sends to Rahab and orders her to, bring, to give up the men, and to turn them over, and she says, oh, they're not here anymore. They came to me, but I didn't know where they were from, so as the gate was being shut and it was dark, I, I sent them out, and so they left. So she's lying to cover up, and what's going on as we come to find out is she understands who they are, and they serve the living God, and she serves the living God, and she reports that everybody in Jericho has heard the whole story of their flight from of the, of the Israelites, flight from Egypt, all about the plagues, all about how God protected them, defeated the Amalekites in the desert, and all of these different battles that took place where God gave them the victory, and now they're scared to death. And she has decided that she is going to uh, worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that has probably already taken place. So God had directed the spies to her, and she says in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land, she's telling this to the two spies, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. And so she lies to protect them, and gives them the intel that they need, and they will depart, and she protects them all under the guise of warfare. So there's legitimacy there. But one of these days when I have the time to go through Joshua, one of the major themes in Joshua is the theme of deception. And it works out not just in for example, the deception of Rahab's uh, covering for the spies, but also in military tactics. See, there's a people people have deception that's lying. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of y'all go out of town? When you go out of town, maybe you turn the radio on, maybe you turn the TV on, maybe you uh, turn the lights on or put a timer on, so you're deceiving people into thinking you're still home, the lights come on, the lights go off, the sound comes on. You want people to think you're there. If you think that what Rahab did is, is inherently wrong, then you can't do that because you're doing the same thing. 
There's deception in order to protect property. Uh, I remember at one time my parents years ago, back in the 70s, got a security system at their house, and they had a couple extra signs. And I had had a peeping Tom at my house in Irving when I was living up there going to seminary. And so I stuck those signs around the house. Never had another problem. Uh, That's deception. I think that we can build a whole theology on that. So we have deception at, at, at I. Now, this is after the destruction of Jericho. There's the initial problem because uh, of the uh, sin of Achan. And then when God gives them the uh, instructions to go after I in, in uh, Joshua chapter 28, he tells them, he says, uh, what you're going to do is you're going to send in a small group and they're going to engage at the wall of Ai, and then as the king of Ai sends out troops after them, they're going to fall back. And then when they fall back to a certain point, then you're going to have hidden your men there, and they're going to come down and ambush and destroy all the people in Ai. That's just deception. So God is using deception in a military tactic. Well, if we think of what's going on in in these wars as all related to military, it's the same uh, same kind of thing. So David is being deceptive within the framework of holy war, and so that has a legitimacy to it. So as a result of that, uh, Achish is totally taken in. Let me get back over to 1 Samuel. Achish is totally taken in, and at the end of the chapter we read, so Achish believed David, saying, He's made his people Israel utterly abhor him, therefore he will be my servant forever. Now, Achish isn't right, but that shows the effectiveness of David's uh, camouflage, of David's undercover operation. He's completely deceived Achish. Now, it's going to come back on him a little bit, as we see in the next couple of verses in 28, 1 and 2. Now, it happened in those days that the Philistines, and that just means it happened at that time. So he's been there a year and four months, and now things are going to come to a crisis. It happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. Why? Because Israel is taking control of the Esdralon Valley and the trade routes. Um, Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. And David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. Notice he hadn't committed himself. He says, well, you know what we can do. There's nothing specific there. He's not making a promise, but Achish is going to read into that what he wants to hear. And so there's a measure of deception there. And then Achish says to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. I'm going to make you the head of my bodyguard detail. Then we get into chapter 29. We'll skip 28. We're going to go to 29, finish out this episode with David in 29 and 30, and then we'll come back and look at uh, what happens to Saul in 28 and 31. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these this episode tonight. Realize that uh, some things about decision-making that may not work out the way we intended doesn't mean it's a sinful decision may not have been the wisest, or it may be a wise decision. But when we trust in you, you will make our paths straight. 
We also see the importance of understanding your word and the commands that are given in your word as David did because when David goes into this position at Ziklag, he continues to fulfill the commands that you gave uh, to Israel. So he shows that he is not in disobedience to you, but that he is continuing to fulfill his role as the anointed of Israel. Father, help us to understand how we can apply these things to our lives, that we are to know your word, because that's the means of our sanctification and how we learn how to think in wisdom so that as we encounter a pagan culture around us, that we can learn to walk circumspectly, often just threading a needle uh, between that which is sinful and that which would be maybe self-destructive so that we can walk wisely and still honor you as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.